0: The bottom line in business, Voice America Business.
1: Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of leading conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business channel. Now, here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. And
2: welcome, everybody. Welcome to Leading Conversations Today. This is Cheryl Esposito. We have a special guest today, Mark Gerzen, who's author of Leading Through Conflict, How Successful Leaders Transform Differences into Opportunities. Mark is the president of the Mediators Foundation, and he's also director of global leadership at the East-West Institute, which he'll enlighten us about. Mark, welcome to the show.
3: Great to be with you, Cheryl.
2: Well, where are you today?
3: In Boulder, Colorado. It's one of the days I'm home.
2: Oh, nice. I know you do a lot of traveling. So it's um, kind of springtime there. Are the little flowers poking up through the snow yet?
3: It is, and it's been beautiful.
2: Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, today we are going to take a look at some of the work that Mark does around the world. Mark, you've led a very interesting life, and I would um, really like for you to share with us a little bit of your background, kind of where you began and what what it was that actually got you interested in global thinking. You have a very big way of seeing the world. And I've read a little bit about kind of how you became, as you call it, a citizen of the world, a global citizen. Could you share a bit of your story?
3: I will, but I want to preface it, Cheryl, by saying that um, I believe that. There's a lot of people who may be listening to this at some point who are global citizens too, but they don't think so because they don't get on planes all the time and fly around and have a lot of frequent flyer miles. And my definition of it means simply that what you're doing, wherever you live and at whatever level you work and you lead, uh, that whatever you, you're doing at that level, if it's good for the world, then it's your global citizen. And it's not about how much you travel or you know, how far you've been in the world. And I think so a lot of you listeners are probably global citizens. And for me, it, I think it started when I was a child because I – was born in America, and, uh, but my parents had just come over from Europe fleeing hitler and um, And I think your I parents. knew from, from the very beginning that i was I was not an american I was, I was global, and my parents happened to have landed in Indiana, they could have landed in Argentina, they could have landed in u k they could have landed in uh, Ar- you know South Africa, but they landed in uh, Indianapolis Indiana mm-hmm.
2: and that was your parents, not your grandparents.
3: Parents, correct, yeah. Oh, wow. I was yeah. born within a year or two after they moved here. So, you know, I looked American. I acted American, but I was, in fact, you know, already a child of the world. And that's true for many of the right. people that I interview. Um, most people, if you go back one or two generations, um, they're global, too.
2: Right, right, absolutely. And your mom lived in, didn't stay in, in Indiana, right?
3: Uh, she, lived, she lived in Boston for the last part of her, her she's lived in Boston for the last 10 years.
2: And did you have, you have a connection to Indonesia,
3: What's that? Uh, my mother grew up in Indonesia. Um, uh-huh. She was the daughter of missionaries. My, my mother was a Christian and my father was a Jew, and my mother was the daughter of missionaries. And my father was, a, you know, in a, in, a, in a line of, went back with a lot of rabbis. So I was already a hyphen and global in that sense, too, that <laughs> my mother wanted me to be a fundamentalist Christian, and my father was certainly not a fundamentalist Christian, and yeah. um, there I was. I'm a, you know, I was a Jewish Christian person, and since then, has spent a lot of time with Buddhism and and, and Hinduism, and uh, and have recently got very interested in, in Islam. So, uh, my feeling about religion is that it's a metaphor for our lives, and and they're all branches on a tree, and I'm interested in seeing the tree, not just the branch.
2: Right. Right. And, and when you were a kid, I'm wondering, um, it sounds like mediation principles may have been at work there when you have two parents who are um, have differing views around religious belief. Um, it, was that kind of an introduction for you about how to resolve problems?
3: Well, you're right in going to my childhood, but it depends on how far you want to go back, Cheryl. Um, you can go back to my parents' divorce. You can go back to their relationship. You can go back to... Um my ancestors who were killed in Auschwitz, you can go back, you know, to... You know, it really depends on how far you want to go back. But I think when the seed is planted, you know, of, for being a mediator and uh, involved in conflict resolution and leading through conflict, I think at that point you can point to many, many, many sources for, for all the things that have watered the seed. Mm.
2: Well, now, I know that you... Um Are very committed to bringing people together. And that doesn't mean um, reaching compromise in a way that is meaningless. You know, I think there's been a lot of work around um, problem solving that says let's just figure out how to get people to be quiet. You know, so let's come to a, a solution that will just get us to move on and doesn't necessarily have much meaning for people. But that's not how you see problem-solving or mediation or enhancing the capacity of groups to work together. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy on that?
3: Well, it's a great question, Cheryl, and, you know, there's a point of view that some people have which says, why, why do we really need to bring people together? You know, what's, what's the point? Let them, let them just hate each other, you know, and mm. isn't that part of life? And, you know, the truth is it is part of life. And I'm not trying to get everybody together. But the metaphor I use, to me the simplest, is this: if you have some people on the shore who have uh, oars and you have some other people on the shore who have a boat, there's no law that says they have to get together and share the oars and boat. But if there's six kids drowning out in the lake, then there's a moral imperative to share the boat and the oars with each other because there's lives depending on it. And regardless of what religious faith you happen to be, I think most people would say yes. If you, if you have a oars and I have a boat and their kid's drowning, we ought to work together. And so I tend to work with conflict situations where there's a moral dimension to it, where there's lives at stake. And that's why I think it's important for people to get together. And that goes way back to my childhood, too, that, you know, just awareness that sometimes this failure to work together isn't just a question of people not liking each other. It's a question right. of people you know, dying.
2: Right, right. So what is the, um, what, what was the project that got you pushed into a direction as a young adult where you thought, you know, this is something I could really hang my hat on. This is something I could really do. Was there anything specific?
3: Well, I think the first experience of it was, my first experience with writing Long before I wrote my current book, Leading through conflict, I I stumbled into being a writer when I was young, and I wrote a book called The Whole World Is Watching, um, which is a book about the '60s generation, and why were we were revolting against the status quo, why were we were revolting against the establishment. And I found that when I wrote the book, which ended up you know being a bestseller, even though I was, I was only right. 20 years old, I found that the tone that was most effective was a tone that empathized with the other side. In other words, if you railed and, and shouted obscenities at the other side, whoever the other side was, they tended not to hear you. But if you treated them with respect and actually empathized with their point of view and then stated why you didn't share it, that increased the chances they would hear you. And, of course, my publisher wanted the maximum number of people to hear what I had to say. So my publisher and all those who advised me on the book helped me learn at a very early age how to speak in a way so that the other side whoever that other side was would, would hear me and I think that really was a formative experience for me because I had a lot of friends who were shouting and screaming and you know dumping manure on you know doing all sorts of things at that time and I did I, was, I mean I was a protester I turned in my draft card and so forth but I, I I always felt you know what's the point of confronting the other side or what's the point of confronting evil the point is to be effective not just you know to hear the sound of your own voice
2: so when you had written that book, the whole world was watching, and you know it became a bestseller. What kind of response were you getting? I mean, what what were people saying to you?
3: Well, I was very fortunate that that book was part of a historical, you know, movement.
2: Yeah. Just like some
3: people think, you know, Obama's candidacy today is part of a movement, um, and there's certainly a movement for to deal with climate change, and there's certainly a de- movement to deal with a number of other issues. That I was part of a movement of a whole generation that was protesting a culture that needed to change. And um, because of that, I think, you know, I ended up meeting with Henry Kissinger, Robert McNamara, the architects of the war. I ended up being able to really, you know, be heard in the halls of power. And I think it taught me that, you know, it taught me that if I reach deeply enough into my heart, and spoke deeply and truly from what I felt that, you know, that there was a chance people would listen. And, um, and I've found that to be true for most of my life.
2: And so you were fortunate that at a very young age you were able to reach into your own heart and then share that, you know, to know what is important to one is, you know, a gift, to be able to then turn around and give that gift to the world is another thing. I mean, was there anybody saying to you, you know, you need to get a real job?
3: Or... <laughs> well, I had a lot of real jobs, but if you look back <laughs> at those real jobs I had, they were all preparing me for being a global mediator. I mean, the first one of my first jobs out of college was working on a global newspaper, which I was asked to do because of some writing I'd been doing. And I ended mm-hmm. up bringing journalists from all over the world together, we had a magazine and newspaper called World Paper that had a circulation of 1.5 million in five languages, and it was a very exciting experience of, of trying to create a global newspaper, which I did because, you know, I'd already practiced these skills of, of, of kind of, of getting in the side of shoes of other people. What you notice when you travel around the world is that yeah. people around the world are all reading their local newspaper, and their local newspaper is feeding them their local point of view. And it's not surprising that then you think differently in Moscow if you read Pravda than if you live in New York and read the New York Times. And so right. I thought well at least we could do is have a global newspaper, maybe we will think you know, and be able to communicate more with somebody if we if we read the same newspaper in the morning, at least alongside our local paper. So that was a job it was a real job, but it was a real job that I think was preparing me for what I do today.
2: Well and if you were to say, you know, is the net our global newspaper today?
3: I think the net is, and I, one of the things I'm working on, one of my passions is to create an e-newspaper that would be the equivalent of that, where you go to your Internet in the morning, you push, you know, Control-P if you want to print it out, and you print out, you know, a global newspaper, which you can read that has commentary and an opinion from every part of the world, carefully sifted by a global group of editors, and when you read it, you say, I've just had a global point of view, just the same way that, you know, that you can get easily in America, you can get a Washington point of view from the Washington Post or... You know, uh, we would get a global point of view. It's one of the one of my dreams, my one of my unfulfilled dreams.
2: Uh, well, if anybody can do it, Mark, I'm sure you can. That seems like that would be able to um, invite great dialogue.
3: Well, that was the, that was what we experienced with the, with World Paper. Was it was extraordinary dialogue and extraordinary confrontation of views, which other newspapers, you know, wanted to repent because we actually had diverse opinions from around the world.
2: Right. Right.
3: I mean, think about it. I'll ask you, your, you know, your listeners to this to think how often have they read a piece by an Iraqi about yeah. what's going on in Iraq or by an Iranian about what's going on in Iran, you know? How often do you see a piece? It's just a simple thing, you know, just getting a piece by an Iranian about how Iran sees things or Iraq, how Iraq sees things, not because they're right, but just because they have a point of view. And, and that's what we were doing. We were printing points of view from around the world and trusting the reader to say, I can make sense out of these different points of view.
2: Well, I can't wait to read that. <laughs> so I am going to ask you more about this because I think it's really important. So we're going to go to break right now. We'll be back in a minute.
0: All we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice America Business.
1: More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into embracing the the journey with karen humphrey salad broadcast you every friday at 9 a.m pacific time on the voice america business channel the bottom line in business talk
0: money money up to date business and financial news Money, money. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866 472 5790. 866 472 5790. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl.
2: And we're back. We're speaking with Mark Garrison today, author of Leading Through Conflict, How Successful Leaders Transform Differences into Opportunities, and president of the Mediators Foundation. So, Mark, before we went to break, we were talking about the global newspaper and uh, your vision for having a global newspaper on the net um, that would provide people daily, the daily dose of um, differing points of view around the world. Now, tell me what, um, do you see today anyone that you um, experience as a true global citizen, somebody who really is able to stand in the world and know that whatever they do has impact all around the globe?
3: Well, I'll pick the first person who comes to mind, which is a good illustration for Americans in America, and that's Jimmy Carter. That um, yeah. Jimmy Carter, among all the other things he's done in his life, one of the things he's done is he's you know, said to himself, I'm going to go to the Middle East and I'm going to meet with Hamas. Now, why is he meeting with Hamas, you know, which is, according to most sources, a terrorist organization and is responsible for the death of a lot of Israeli and other citizens. And he's going because he said to himself, we're never going to have peace in the Middle East unless we have a table where the adversaries are sitting down. You don't, you, you can't get peace with, without the adversaries sitting down. And Jimmy Carter said, okay, Hamas is one of the adversaries. I'm going to get them to the table. And I admire him for that because it takes courage. You know, on one level, he's risking his life. He's certainly risking his reputation. And um, yeah. why can he do it? He can do it because he's not running for office.
2: Right. Now, you know, that brings us to another point about the power of politicians or not. Um, you know, people who are in political office very often have great ideals and they want to make a difference and then they get caught in the political loops. And um, have you, you've been connected to politics for a long time and in fact you did some um, training, some leadership training with some of the the House of Representatives that you worked. with. That's right,
3: with. members of the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: And could you talk a little bit about that? Why was that important?
3: Well, as anybody who's watching the current campaign Knows um, there's a lot of poisonous rhetoric between Democrats and Republicans, and now we've managed to get a lot of poisonous rhetoric between Democrats and Democrats. Right. And you know, again, people consider that's politics. You know, you know, it's freedom of the press, freedom of speech. You know, that's the way it's going to be. That's what campaign life is about. And again, you know, I'm up to a certain point. I, I completely agree. But what happened in the House of Representatives a decade ago was that the animosity and hostility got to the point in the House of Representatives that you had Democrats and Republicans on the House floor turning to each other and saying, you know, we can't we can't we can't do the work we're supposed to do anymore. We can't represent the American people. We can't get anything done here because we're so busy calling each other names. We're so busy trying to oppose anything the other party does. We can't do basic things that we're supposed to do for the American people. So they had a retreat where they said, "Let's go away together and repair our relationships." And two hundred members of the House of Representatives went away uh, for two and a half days to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I thought it was important because they run a country. They run a country. They run one of the most countries, one of the most powerful countries in the world. And they felt that unless they, you know, improved that relationship, their working relationship, they couldn't function. And that's what I mean by my metaphor earlier in the show about, you know, this conversation about you know, the moral imperative of getting a person with an oar and a person with a boat to get together if their kid's drowning in a lake, I felt that it was a moral imperative that the Democrats and Republicans start talking to each other because they have a country to run. And they have a health care system to, you know, re- revise and operate. They're they they, they have, they're now fighting a war. And they're turning the war into a political football. You know, a political football where, you know, they don't really take the, the lives of American servicemen to heart. They don't really take the lives of Iraqi citizens to heart. They've turned it into a political football where they're going to gain advantage and make the opponent disadvantaged by the positions they take. And I I think that's that's where partisanship can become immoral. Extreme partisanship can become immoral. And if anybody wants to see the first person who said that, it was George Washington in his farewell address.
2: Hmm. So even then there was uh, concern that it could happen
3: Absolutely. George Washington said extreme partisanship is the, is the greatest danger we face as a republic. And he wasn't against partisanship, where people have differences of opinion. Mm-hmm. But I, one, of the, one of the House members I dealt with during one of the retreats said, you know, the party leadership is telling us to oppose absolutely everything the other party proposes. Uh, and we're, and we're, we know that they're opposing everything that we propose. He said that's not leadership, and it's not. You know, that's just being a mechanical, knee-jerk... Right. You know, opponent.
2: Right, right. We actually don't need people for that. We just need you know a computer that says no. That's right. You know, right.
3: Exactly. Um, if Republicans propose it, and I'm a Democrat, I oppose it. If Democrats right. propose it, and I'm a Democrat, I'm a favor. Well, that's you right. It's a, that's a machine. That's a computer. That's not a discerning legislature. That's not a leader.
2: Yeah, I've had a feeling for many, many years that um, leadership has been abdicated by those that we put in office, and. Um, You know, I'm wondering about our political system and just the structure that we're in. Um, Do you think that this structure has perhaps outlived its usefulness, or is there another way that we could look at this? Because certainly the two-party system, or even, you know, with a third independent, um, doesn't seem to be getting us anywhere these days.
3: Well, the way I see it, Cheryl, is very similar. Um, um, I, I don't think the critical question is whether there's two or three or four parties. I think the critical question is how do they relate to each other. Uh-huh. And I've always felt in the work that I've done with legislatures and that I've done with communities and I've done with companies, and in all cases when I'm dealing with organizations that have a certain amount of polarized energy, um, what I say is you know, there's a one track, what I could call track one, which is a debate track. And on the debate track... You know, go ahead, pick out your polarized positions, fight them out, vote, and see who gets the most votes, and the one who gets the most votes wins, and the other side loses. You know, for a certain set of issues, that's fine. Right. But I said, what about having a track two, which I call dialogue, and what about on that track two? Why don't you say this is an issue that has a moral or ethical or social or economic overtone that is so vital to our country and so vital to our way of life so vital to ourselves as, 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 a, as ethical leaders that this issue we want to dialogue about. We want to have a different set of rules for this issue. We're going to put this issue into track two. And this one, we're going to put a group of Democrats and Republicans together. And what I've done privately with a number of them is, you know, you take them off privately. You say, let's have a dialogue. You question the assumptions and you come up with an innovative, creative new option that they all like. And that's what committees used to be in the House of Representatives in the Senate. You know, that's what people used to do in committee when there still used to be, you know, actual collaboration, now committees are just a place where they take the party leadership's orders to do whatever the party's position is. And so there's no real dialogue. And I, I think what the loss of that is, just like, you know, anybody who's listening to this program can just think, well, what would their relationships be like if all they did was debate? You know, if they never dialogued, well, you know, the relationship wouldn't last long. And that's what's happening in, in our democracy. And I think our democracy is ready to shift to the next. We need to go from democracy 2.0 to 3.0.
2: Mark, how did we get
3: here?
2: Where did, where did we go so far off track?
3: Well, I mean, that's a very big question, Cheryl, and I, I don't have a I don't have a you know a one stop answer for it. But I, I will say that that my metaphor I just used about democracy two to three is kind of a clue that everybody you know listening to us right now probably uses software, and you know they used Office nine and then ten came out and they said okay. I'm going to check out 10.0 and see if it's better than 9.0. And if it was, they switched. Right. Now, that seems very natural when it comes to software. But now look, by contrast, what we've done with something called the House of Representatives. You know, instead of going House of Representatives 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, we keep doing the same thing. Now, it's, you know, tripled in size or quadrupled in size since it was started. You know, it's... Now working in a global environment, it's working in an internet environment. It's working in a world where major corporations, you know, have enormous power. I mean, the world has changed in 200 years, right. but we're still basically dealing with House of Representatives 1.0, and and so our attitude to these things, our attitude to these things needs to change. It needs to become more like our attitude towards software, which is let's prototype some shifts, let's prototype some innovations, let's check out to see if they work. If they work, let's adopt them. If they don't work, let's not adopt them. And that means really changing the way the institution operates. And, and I, I think we just need to become more inventive and more design-oriented rather than, than position-oriented.
2: Well, and so we have people with ideas, people like you with ideas, who can really see and have the vision of how things, you know, could be different or at least what the process could be to get to whatever the picture of difference is. Um, but what is the, what's the access point? You know, is it going to be the next president who says, all right, you know what, this isn't working. We need to do something different. We need to investigate this. Who has the power to, to begin the shift or be, even the investigation or the inquiry
3: into this? Well, uh, I, I'm a Jeffersonian Democrat in this sense, which is what I think the answer to your question of who has the power, as tried as it sounds, is the people. And the problem right now, is that very, very few people can have woken up from the trance of Democrat versus Republican? That and I'm not saying it makes no difference. I mean, I'll be frank and say I'm a Democrat, and you know I'm going to vote Democratic this year. So I mean, I'm I'm not being coy. I don't I don't mean that there's not a purpose for right. knowing who you're going to vote for. Um, and I respect you know friends who are McCain supporters, and and you know I, re- I respect anybody who has a serious, thoughtful point of view, but. I don't have a Democratic-Republican orientation. I have a, an orientation that says what's best for the country. And for me, you know, there's a third of the, there's a third of the people in this country who've called themselves independents. And that third, uh, if you think about it, just think just objectively, a third of the people call themselves independents, not Democrats or Republicans. And yet how many independents are there in the House of Representatives in the Senate? Um, maybe one. Right. Maybe one from Vermont. So um, we have a problem, which is that those third of Americans who are independents, um, who are they represented by? Well, they have to go either D or R, and that's a fundamental flaw. And if those independents stood up and said to their fellow Ds and Rs, um, you know, we're going to vote for people who uh, who follow these following ethical standards, and and not whether they are D or R. If, we're gonna, if, in other words, if there was a third force amongst citizens, a really strong third force, that would have a major effect on the way politicians behave. Because right now, they still think if somebody's got a D in front of their name, the D candidate's got a lock on them. And an R candidate has a lock on the R's. And, you know, I think that's, that's going to change. Within a generation, that will change. And I already see it in the younger generation. They're just not playing that game. It's not going to go along with the
2: usual well,
0: that gives me hope. We're going to talk more about this when we come right back with Mark. Here's all we talk about is money. Call us toll-free, 866-472-5790, and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice of America Business.
1: Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Hey, Dad. What?
0: I can't get the ketchup bottle open. Here, let me try. Here you go. Thanks. You don't have to be a hero to be a hero. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council.
1: The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On The Economy and the Markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cleggett broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world.
0: Stocks, bonds, 401Ks, investments, refinancing. We can help you. Call now toll-free, 866-472-5790, 866-472-5790. Voice America Business.
1: We appreciate you joining our Leading Conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And
0: welcome
2: back to Leading Conversations. We're speaking with Mark Garrison today, author of Leading Through Conflict and president of Mediators Foundation. Mark, you're also Director of Global Leadership um, at the East-West Institute. Could you talk a little bit about the East-West Institute and how that has informed your work in the world?
3: Yes, I was approached by East-West Institute because of the work I've done around global leadership and developing global leadership. and um, I'm really glad they did approach me because since working with them for the past year, I've been able to do the work that I've always done. But at a much higher and influential, more influential level. And the current project I'm working on is bringing together think tanks from each of the major parts of the world, China, Russia, the Middle East, and building the network that's essentially a de facto global think tank where they're going to think more globally. And I'm really excited about it because we need them all to think more globally. And, and they haven't. And so it's, it's really an extension of the work that began a generation ago with my, um, you know, with my work with the global newspaper.
2: And so this is, give me an example of some of the people that are involved in this.
3: Well, what we're finding is that there's a lot of leaders um, in almost every country, including China and Russia and the Middle East, who are looking for a different way of doing business. And we call them cross-boundary leaders. Mm -hmm. And we also call them leaders as mediators. Um, And the whole concept of a cross-boundary leader is that that they don't think about, you know, reading, or they don't think about leading this side against that side. They right. think about building a bridge between this side and that side. So it's a fundamentally different approach to leadership. And we're right. basically linking and leveraging those cross-boundary leaders and trying to create a new generation of leadership that's going to think and act differently because what we've seen you know, in uh, in the us-against-them leaders is that they tend to make conflicts worse, not better.
2: Right, right. Well, and that certainly does fit with this generation when you think about how integrated this generation is, how cross-cultural this generation is, um, you know, their, their whole perspective, this generation, of course, I'm talking about people younger than me you know, <laughs> and, you know, people in their 20s, um, it, their perspective on the world is so different. And what I feel when I'm around them is they are so much more open and they have so many less prejudices in them as they look at the world. And do you think that that's a fact of just because they have access to a lot of information and, you know, they, they tend to get more, they know more? Do you think that's part of it?
3: I do, um, and I think it's just really natural. In, in the work that I'm doing now, I'm writing now about global intelligence, or what I call GQ, mm-hmm. and basically young people have grown up in a world of YouTube where, you know, you can see for yourself What's happening on the other side of the world, uh, through a handheld, you know, through somebody's, um, cell phone camera, you can see it the next right. day. And right. it didn't, you know, it wasn't because the government released those images. It wasn't because the government told you that story. It wasn't because ABC or NBC or CBS told you that was story. It was because it was taken by somebody there and posted on YouTube and you went to YouTube. And right. it's, it's a different way. If, if, if Barack Obama becomes president of the United States, Um, He needs to send YouTube a thank you note because, you know, YouTube, you know, I think the last one of his speeches, I I saw it was something like 1.6 million hits, um, which means 1.6 million people were probably reading it, and many of them were sending it to their friends. Well, that was a form of communication that was simply um, unavailable, um, unavailable a generation ago.
2: Well, and so given that, um, let's talk about, you know, how somebody who doesn't play well on YouTube, um, somebody who doesn't deliver like an entertainer, um, you know, how, how is much of that going to influence people's perspectives these days, given that, you know, we're kind of the, the entertainment generation?
3: Well, this is a case where I think I'd like to ask you to say a little more about why you think, where, where that question is coming from, because it's a very good question, but I'd just like you to say a little more.
2: Well, you know, the, the, um, it, it goes beyond the idea that, you know, the sound bite's important. You know, for, for a long time, everybody knew that, so they figured out how to get the sound bite down, and then they were only on camera for 30 seconds, and okay, fine. But now we're looking at um, people who have to engage their audience, whether their audience is actually there to speak back to them or not. We have to... um, People have to be able to be the message, and when they're on video or when they are over the airwaves, the message has to be articulated in a way that inspires. Not everybody... As smart as they may be, as well read as they may be, as you know familiar with the issues and have great ideas as they may may have, not everybody plays well you know and 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 is seen um what am I trying to say um not everybody has the capacity to look like you know some professional entertainer
3: and, uh, yeah i you're absolutely right that there's a bias to a certain way of communicating. Um on that again, you know, Michael Moore is not exactly what you'd call fike psych- photogenic. You know, he's Michael Moore is not George Clooney, um, but he found a way of communicating. Um, and uh, Bob Dylan is not exactly, you know, uh, as handsome as, uh, you know, one of these young, young um,
2: yeah.
3: hip guys. And he still gets his music out. So um, I guess I have a hope. Um, I particularly have a hope now that the communications media is being democratized. With the internet, that um, that I think, what we see is that that there's a there's a new chance for a variety of voices to rise, and for a while there, it looked like monopoly was going to be media was going to become totally monopolized. You know? Yeah, so.
2: yeah, it did. You know I, what what you're saying I, actually makes me reminds me that um, when I was growing up in you know the rock and roll era, and there were the Bob Dylans and the Janis Joplin's, et cetera. And um, you know, rock and rollers, you know, kind of had an edge, and they they weren't necessarily pretty. And then we went into this whole generation of singer-dancer um, pop stars who were all beautiful. And I remember thinking, when did they all get pretty? What happened
3: to them? Right. <laughs> the, well, well, right, I understand well. Right, <laughs> yeah. One of one of my one of the ways I've channeled my concern about the media is that. Um, I've been working on a project with East West Institute called the TV News Summit, where we're bringing together Al Jazeera, Al Fox, CNN, BBC, asking them together to look at how they're covering the tensions between the Muslim world and the West and asking them to look at what it's, what it's doing, um, what, their, what their coverage is doing, and how it could change. And we're, well, I'm excited about it because I've had experience with this in the past when I've done projects like the Entertainment Summit, where I brought the Soviet film industry together with the American film industry during the Cold War and basically ended the Cold War on the, on the big screen. And I think the media are extremely important, and, and, and you know programs like yours are one of the ways, I think, that we're hearing new voices and getting new voices out, and that's absolutely critical.
2: Well, so say a little bit more about ending the Cold War on the big screen.
3: Well, that was one of the first projects that I did. Um, I was, uh, at that point, a screenwriter and producer in Hollywood. And I was trying to make socially conscious films. And what I noticed was that, you know, you couldn't make socially conscious films in Hollywood because there was too much ideological resistance. It was basically the Reagan years, and and the, the film industry was in the grip of the Cold War. So I decided to bring the top Soviet filmmakers to Hollywood. And then took the top Hollywood filmmakers to Moscow and other country and other cities in, Mo- in the Soviet Union, and basically we showed the films they'd made about each other, and they were appalling, you know. And wow. the filmmakers were appalled by the by their own work, and they said, "What are we going to do about this?" And they said, "We've got to do something different." And I'm very pleased to say that they took leadership. They really took leadership and um, really stepped up and, and said, "We're going to play a different game." Um, so.
2: Do you see any of that happening today? When we look at you know what's happening in the Middle East and um, any of the films that are coming out these days?
3: Well, uh, I have been working on the TV News Summit because yes, I've seen the same thing happen that uh-huh. we've essentially re- replaced the Soviet um, you know communist with the Islamic extremist, and we now have our ready we now have a ready made villain, you know, um, and that ready made villain can. You may be stuck in any, you know, whether it's Back to the Future with Michael J. Fox or, you know, some other movie. We now have this, you know, character, this Muslim extremist. And it's very easy, The Terminator, you know, The Terminator with with, uh, Schwarzenegger. All all these films have used Muslim bad guys. And sometimes the Muslim bad guy actually has, you know, there's some real meat and juice and and, and meaning to that role. But most of the time it's just a stereotype. You know, they say, we need a villain. who's it going to be? Oh, and in the 80s it was a Soviet communist and now it's a Muslim extremist.
2: Right, right. It's more gratuitous, yes um, yeah, so maybe we should make a movie about your life. <laughs> you have such an interesting background. i mean I think about where you've come from, the people that you have met and have had the privilege of sitting in front of and have had the privilege of influencing i mean this is this is enormous, mark you know, I mean how do you when you if you were to describe your life you know just like get a sentence what comes to mind
3: for you mm. well the image came to me of a bridge across a river mm. and it's interesting that that's the image that came to me cheryl because um, one of the things i like to do is I like to travel and what i notice when i travel is that every place in the world i go to has bridges um, maybe not a you know, completely flat section of desert. You know, they might not have a bridge. But almost every other community I go to, um, I have a bridge. And why is that? Because people on one side of a barrier or a river or a canyon or, you know, want to get to the other side. Uh, for those of your, you know, your listeners who know San Francisco, people want to get from San Francisco to Marina County. Right. or people want to get, if they're New Yorkers, they want to get from Manhattan to LaGuardia or Kennedy. Right. Right. And, you know, guess what? They need a bridge. And I guess that's my image that comes to my mind because I like, I like connection because, to me, connection on this human plane is probably one of the doorways to connection with, you know, to a higher plane, to a divine plane. And if we can learn to connect better across our differences on this plane, I think we'll probably connect better to the divine as well. So that's 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 an image that came to me. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do in my current... Uh, I have a screenplay at the moment circulating in Hollywood um, called The Trial of Osama bin Laden. And mm-hmm. the screenplay is about what happens when bin Laden is captured and brought to trial. Why, have my, why did I and my colleague Peter Goldmark write it? I wrote it because I knew that in real life there'd be no bridge between bin Laden and Bush. There'd be no actual conversation. Um, they would try to kill each other and kill each other's followers and they would never have the guts to sit down and talk to each other, you know. And I thought, well, how can I get them to sit down? Well, as a mediator, I can get a lot of people to sit down, but I will never get George Bush and Bin Laden together in a room. <laughs> so I thought I can't get them together in a room, but I can get them together on a stage, and I can get them together on a screen. So we we had a our play was performed in Minneapolis for oh. just sold out audiences for three weeks, and now it's in circulating in Hollywood, and I hope within a year or two or it would be on a screen somewhere, and hopefully many screens, and people would start to see. Okay, that, you know, even, even, e- we can even learn from a conversation between a Bush and a bin Laden, you know? I mean, a fictional is a powerful. fictional Bush and bin Laden. In real yeah, life, I'm not sure how much real life we like to learn, you know?
2: That's absolutely powerful. I don't know how you come up with all of this, Mark Garrison. You are just, you ever stop? Does your brain ever shut down? <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, truth is, the truth is, my brain stops a lot, and now that I'm. Now that I'm approaching 60 and have five grandkids, I find that, uh, Ah. you know, a little gardening here and playing with the grandson (laughs) there, it's, um, you know, and I I think that's what keeps us all sane in in this world with all these challenges that seem so much bigger than we are, um, that what keeps us sane is by doing doing the small and wonderful things that make up life, you know? Well, we're going to
2: take a break, Mark, and we'll be back right after this.
3: Thanks.
0: We talk about his money. Call us toll free, 866 472 5790, and talk to the experts. We talk, talk money, money all, the all the time. Voice America Business.
1: consulting developing leaders worldwide why is pepsi cooler than coke why are iPods so popular in 2005 how can you launch a successful brand want to know learn about the fascinating and intriguing world of graphic design and branding on design matters with debbie millman every friday at 12 pacific standard time debbie millman will provide you with a provocative look into the stimulating world of design as it intersects with contemporary culture Hear what the experts have to say about creating, maintaining, and launching a brand in today's challenging marketplace. Join us every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.
0: All we talk about is money. Call us toll free 866-472-5790 and talk to the experts. We talk money all the time. Voice America
1: Business. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. And we're back.
2: We're speaking with Mark Gerzen, author of Leading Through Conflict, How Successful Leaders Transform Differences into Opportunities. Now, Mark, you're also president of the Mediators Foundation, so you spend a lot of time dealing with conflict, and you've been doing this for a long time in your life, and that's no reference to your age. And um, so tell us a bit about, you know, what have you learned from all of this?
3: I've learned that conflict is an opportunity, and I've learned that the part of me that kept wanting to avoid it or run away from it or minimize it uh, was missing an opportunity. And um, I think what I've learned about conflict is that it's like uh, the metaphor I use, Cheryl, is that it's like cooking. Um, that if it's too hot, you're going to burn your food, and if it's too cold, it's not going to cook it. And so we need a temperature that is um, that is appropriate. So I often find myself in situations where when the temperature of the conflict's too hot, I need to cool it down, and when the temperature is too cold, I need to heat it up. And generally speaking, I'm overgeneralizing, but generally speaking, in companies, um, it's too cold. And in politics, it's often too hot. Oh, interesting. Um, And I recently did a training with 20 CEOs, and I said to you, you know, I first taught them about hot and cold conflict, and I said, how many of you have conflict in your companies that's too hot? Raise your hand. And out of 20, there was one hand. And I said, how many of you have conflict that's too cold in your company? And 18 raised their hands. Uh And that's fairly typical. And and I believe that cold conflict, whether in a company or in a community or in the world, cold conflict is basically, you know, opportunity waiting to be discovered.
2: And so when you've got a group, let's say a, a big corporation, and you see them in cold conflict, how do you take them out of that?
3: Well, the reason that it's cold, Cheryl, is usually fear. Because it's a fear that if it got hot, it would, you know, they would lose their jobs, they'd lose their relationships, they'd lose the client. Um, Or, you know, if it got really, really hot, they might lose their, they might lose an arm or they might lose their life. So it's basically, for me, it's a question of naming it, normalizing it, saying, of course, your company's got cold conflict. You you haven't been trained to deal with conflict. So, you know, it's very smart of you to avoid it. Um, But now, why don't you become a more conflict literate company? And why don't you learn a little more about it? And then you can take the hidden opportunities that are in this conflict and really turn it into something that's productive and effective. And people really appreciate that. I think they appreciate being you know, you know, being, being told that you know, they, they haven't had the skills, they haven't learned it, and they, they, they want an opportunity to learn. And people usually learn pretty fast.
2: What can somebody do if they are um, in the midst of a conflict and they have no idea how to handle something, Um, and they're hearing you say, well, okay, so if it's too hot, cool it down. If it's too cold, you know, heat it up. Um, What are some practical things they can do?
3: Well, I'm going to sound like a typical author here for just a minute, and I apologize for it, but I did write the book because people kept asking me that question. (laughs) Um, They kept asking me that question. They said, what have you learned about conflict that I can use right now in my life? And the closing chapter of the book is actually... The chapter that says, if you don't have time to read a book because you're in the middle of something, uh, just read this appendix, because it basically says, here's what to do in a crisis when you don't have time to read a book. Okay. But if you're not in the middle of a crisis, uh, then I, I really do recommend reading it, because the assignment that Harvard Business School Press gave me was, they said, Mark, there are a lot of leaders out there that you know, don't want to hire a mediator. They don't want to hire a negotiator. They're dealing with conflict, and they want to deal with it themselves can you put everything that there is in the field about this, can you put it in one book so people can digest it quickly and have easy access to it? And that's what I did. I mean, I have some of my own work in there, but mostly what I do is I said I'm going to try to create a handbook so that leaders who, you know, they don't want to become a mediator or a negotiator. They're, you know, in business or they're in politics or they're a mayor or they're a city councilman or, you know, they're a teacher or a principal or a superintendent. They, they just They just want to, you know, know how to deal with some basic conflict that's happening. And that's who I wrote the book for. And I believe that there are some simple tools. I say simple not because you can learn them overnight, but simple because you can grasp them fairly quickly. And I learned these tools about dealing with conflict by going to leaders who were effective, all the way from Nelson Mandela to, you know, people I worked with at the UN to other people I've seen in business who are just, who, who are effective. And I said, well, you know, how have you dealt with conflict? And they told me what they did. And I clustered what they did into eight tools, and that toolbox is, is in Leading Through Conflict.
2: Well, now, you talk about conflict um, as conflict transformation and not conflict resolution. What's the discerning difference there?
3: Well, the best answer I can give you is to say I just had a meeting in Geneva of peacemakers from around the world that I partnered with the UN to organize, and these leaders came from some of the most difficult conflict areas in the world. And one of the Africans who attended the meeting said, please don't use the word conflict resolution in Africa that we we have problems, they're not going to be resolved. And when you come and tell us they're going to be resolved, meaning fixed, we don't believe you because they've been around for generations and they're going to be around for a long time. Uh, And then he went on to say why he likes the word transformation. And he said transformation is an ongoing process. And uh, it'll have ups and downs. It'll have highs and lows. We'll make progress and we'll have setbacks. But it's a process, he said, of transforming the relationships that lead to the conflict. It's not a question of resolving it once and for all or fixing it. And I thought that was a very good summary of why I like the word transformation. I also like the word because um, compromise is a word that's, you know, fairly common in Western cultures, right. which means, you know, you've got a hundred of X and you've got to divide them up and you divide them up and one side gets 60 and the other gets 40 or one gets 55 and one gets 45 and you call it a compromise and then you go on your way that's great if it works, but it's not a way that we can solve a lot of the problems we face. Israel and Palestine is a case in point. You know, they could have compromised a long time ago, but Israel and Palestine aren't, aren't compromising. Right. And that's because what's needed there is a transformation right. of a situation. It needs to be transformed. And when we were talking, you know, if we talked about politics, we need to transform the way Democrats and Republicans deal with each other, not just find a compromise. So I like the word transformation because it su- suggests fundamental change. Mm.
2: You know, I want to point to one piece of um, in your mediator leaders' toolbox out of leading through conflict, um, you use the concept, one of the tools is called bridging. Is there just a short, quick answer to helping people understand how to be the bridge?
3: Well, I want to point out that bridging is tool number seven out of eight, and that's because the preceding six tools um, actually are the building blocks for the bridge. So you can't just go and say, I want to be the bridge, and I am I think the preceding six tools that I describe are all critical to bridging. But the key thing with bridging is to recognize that the conflict that you're in or that you're a part of has relationships that are that are broken, that have low trust and when there's one or more relationships that have low trust either the people themselves or a third party needs to build a bridge between them so that they can work together more effectively raise the trust between them and discover a productive way of collaborating that analysis you know of, of what the relationship is that needs bridging and how to build the bridge is to me the key and you know when when we spoke when we spoke earlier about Jimmy Carter and Hamas um, that's what Jimmy Carter is trying to do in the Middle East. He's saying Hamas may be a terrorist organization, but I need to build a bridge to them if we're going to have peace in the Middle East, and that's what he's trying to do. And I find, whether it's in companies or communities, that there's usually a critical relationship that, you know, if, if it can, a bridge can be built, um, we see a systemic change.
2: Well, Mark, this has been so informative and so much fun talking with you today. We are coming to the end of our show. And um, I want to give you the opportunity to share with people how they can reach you because I know people are going to be interested in more of your work.
3: Um, there's two ways. Um, you know, they can they can get the book from, from Harvard Business School Press or Amazon Leading Through Conflict. And if they want to reach me, they have a very simple address: my name at aol.com.
2: At aol.com, markgerson.com. Mark, we appreciate you being here on Leading Conversations today. It's been a privilege and all the best with your work and your new book that will be coming out around global intelligence. We'll have to have you back so you can talk more about that. I
3: I look forward to it, Cheryl.
2: All right, great. Thanks again, Mark. Take care. And remember, everybody, think big. The world should become a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Acevedo.